0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode two of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre. uh, With me is Z, and Anti won't be joining us this week. Uh, He had a previous commitment. So he will be back next week, though. So it's just going to be the two of us today. And uh, yeah, so this stream is titled CSGO Days, Mitigations, and uh, Voting Systems. So those are going to be the main topics we're going to be covering. And the first thing we're going to talk about, I think would be the CS:GO days. Would you be good with that Z? We started with that. Yep. Okay. So I don't know how much you read into it. So you, I guess you can pull up the uh, browser now. So it was disclosed from hacker one, which is like a a bounty platform and the (laughs) weakness, classic buffer overflow. So, I guess it is a bit disingenuous to say it's just a CS:GO day. It's actually in the Steam client, so it affects Team Fortress 2, Half Life, and CS:GO. Um, But it's essentially a server, uh, like a client exploit that can be exploited by the server, and it's a stack overflow with a player name, uh, with a player name that the server sends over to you. So uh, it's kind of kind of an interesting report. I thought one thing that was really cool about it was they had to worry about Unicode because the player names are in Unicode, so they had to uh, use gadgets and stuff that didn't have like null bytes in the address and stuff like that, so I thought that was kind of uh, really cool. Yeah, Um, I
1: mean, no null bytes is pretty normal for the kind of classic buffer overflows, but I do like the fact that this really is your traditional buffer overflow. You know they're literally you know <clears throat> spamming the buffer, overflowing it, overwriting EIP, and away they go. Now in their exploit they do a ROP chain from there to turn off uh the stack protection, then execute their shellcode. But you know it, it's a you know pretty classic style of attack. Um, I don't think their script deals with ASLR, which you'd have to if they were actually trying to exploit this. But
0: yeah. The other thing is there is another... uh, So not only was there the null bytes, but they also had a bit of a restriction on the addresses they could use because if it was invalid Unicode, it wouldn't work. Um, But yeah, and that's kind of funny, right? That we're in 2019 and there's still software out there that you can just easily exploit a stack overflow like that, uh, ASLR aside, um, because there's no... Uh, for some reason there's no stack cookies in the server browser library. So
1: yeah, I mean uh, I mean we could debate the use of stack cookies though. I mean there's it does have a huge performance impact so putting it everywhere it doesn't really make sense. Um I mean on, on server code, I could see more of a reason, especially kind of in this case where It seems to be uh, communicating kind of with uh, player-run servers. You know, there's not a good reason to even trust it to begin with.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I guess the other thing is, too, games haven't really been considered too much for, like, a payload delivery method for, like, malware and stuff like that. They don't typically hit games. They hit more, like, browsers and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, Um, I mean, there's... uh, Do we want to jump onto the next one, or...?
0: Well, I was just That's gonna beautiful. say, like you know uh these engines, like the Steam client and even like source engine and stuff like that they're the co- the code is pretty old right like it's some of it is from like the nineties, and they don't really keep the code up to date and don't adapt newer security mitigations, so I guess that could be like uh a consideration in that."
2: Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of
1: the clients being hacked, though, that is something you kind of hear rumors about every so often. I mean, it's definitely not the first time I've heard about the games being hacked. Like, it's definitely happened in the past. Um, Yeah. But if we kind of look at the next news report, there's on CS 1.6 malware campaign.
0: Yeah, so this this is the one here.
1: Yeah, I think that's kind of a really interesting case because uh, so often you kind of have you know these malware campaigns are doing malvertising is you know kind of the big thing right now, and yeah, um, I mean this with the game this is the first time I can really think of where it's a malware campaign through the game client. There's maybe been other cases of it that I'm just not familiar with. But um, the only kind of exploit to the game, like probably just kind of a favorite little story to mention is, um, are you familiar with uh, Ratchet and Clank up your arsenal? Uh, It was on the PS2.
0: I think I played it, but it was a a long time ago. But yeah, I'm familiar with the Ratchet and Clank games.
1: Yeah, well, so what they did, they didn't have any way to update their game when they kind of released it. Um, So, their update method was actually a buffer overflow in the EULA, the End User License Agreement. They would basically just overflow that until they reached a function pointer and then update the game that way. Uh, So, like, you know, there there have been exploits in games, you know, for quite a while. Mm -hmm. But I haven't heard of them too often being used for malware. I've definitely heard of them being used on, like, very specific cases to infect someone in particular.
0: Yeah, and the other case where they're kind of used, I guess, would be like uh, console jailbreaking. So games are like, a other than the browser, games are probably like the second best vector for trying to get code execution on consoles too. Uh, But for malware, yeah, I haven't really seen it used much.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the other thing is that this one actually exploits both. There's two of the remote code executions that are in the game client, like the stock game client you get from Steam. But uh, two or four, uh, the report you've got up mentions uh, four, but uh, the other news report only mentions uh, two of them. So I'm not sure how many uh, zero days were dropped with this or were found with this. But um, two of them were two or four were in pirated copies, like specific to the pirated copies of the game, uh, which I thought was you know, a little bit on the intriguing side that, you know, they're looking at infecting the pirated users also.
0: Yeah, and I heard something where even legitimate users, uh, the names were getting changed of players to link to the uh, infected client, but I... Yeah,
1: that's, uh, once they were infected, like, once they had the, I forget the name of the malware, I'm not even sure
0: quite how to say it, but... uh, yeah <laughs> i'm just gonna call it felonard yeah
1: yeah so um yeah when they'd get infected that was one of the things they would do is it would change their name on uh cs 1.6 to whatever their domain was or if you would kind of download that and kind of get some advert or get some traffic going to it um yeah i mean the actual use of this malware seemed to be more or less advertising legitimate uh counter-strike servers
0: yeah so i think it promoted both the malicious and the legitimate ones that it were like people paid for i think is what i read
1: yeah it's it seemed to be uh like they could do them like it would use the malicious ones. so the way the actual exploit worked is um basically the infected user would start up a game or start up a game server and that would be listed as like a proper cs 1.6 game showing there, but when somebody connected to that, it would proxy the request to this malicious server. The malicious server would serve the RC, infect them, and away you go.
0: Yeah. And one thing I did think was interesting, I can't remember the exact page it was in the report, but it mentioned that they've reported this and uh, like the bug that was used in this malware campaign, and a few other bugs to Valve, and they still haven't bothered to fix it, so it's still... uh, still a zero day, so they obviously didn't talk too much about the exploit details, but...
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, I kind of tried digging into that. They make mention of, I think, some of the files that are impacted by it, but there really isn't enough to uh, comment on like the sophistication of the exploits or anything. But if we use uh, the Steam one as an example, it may be pretty straightforward. Although that's pure speculation, to be fair.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there is that requirement, like even the Steam one, like you said, there was the requirement for ASLR. And from what I've heard about Source Engine and stuff like that, ASLR is generally the bigger hurdle to overcome. Like you can find quite a few memory corruption bugs, but the ASLR is like a big pain because info leaks are not incredibly easy to pull off on game engines, I guess. Uh so I guess that's another thing too that you know I'm really interested if the bug will get publicly disclosed just so to see how they What was the time frame
1: that they've mentioned or did they mention in the larger report a time frame on how long ago they had reported this
0: Um I'm, I don't remember seeing where they said that
1: I Yeah I, I don't recall seeing it that's why I thought
0: Maybe Yeah it just says had, we previously reported a similar incident but <clears throat> yeah oh so yeah so it, it refers to a previous so there was another malware campaign before this too uh but it required user interaction. so yeah i had seen powerful.
1: that so i didn't kind of include it when i was mentioning it because i mean yeah th- there's plenty of trojans or yeah. and stuff like absolutely you you pirate a game you're probably getting something in there also yeah I mean that that that's just a given when it comes to piracy. You can't really trust what you've got. You know, think about who's providing it to you and what they get from it.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I think that's everything on the CS:GO day and the CS: One Point Six day. Uh, hopefully we like hopefully more technical details come out about that. Maybe we can talk about that more when they do. Um, going at a bit more of a technical level we have the uh, WebKit structure ID mitigation, which I actually didn't pull up in the browser. Uh, so hopefully it's, uh, I should be able to find it here. Uh, yeah, you know, I just... I've got it. Oh, you've got it. Okay. Perfect. Look at that. So I thought this would be kind of interesting to talk about because it is kind of a new mitigation. <clears throat> and uh So, to kind of understand how this, like, what this mitigation does, I'll talk a little bit about how WebKit exploitation works. Yeah. Uh, So,
1: like, I mean, I see Structure ID. I haven't done any WebKit exploits, so I mean, probably best start off with, you know, what even is a uh, Structure ID? How is that used in the exploit or in the normal kind of exploit chain?
0: Yeah. So in WebKit, your common goal is to go for a a read-write primitive, Uh, you generally can't really go directly to code execution anymore because of the mitigations that have been put in place over the years. So read-write is like the ultimate primitive in browser exploitation. So how you typically achieve that with almost every exploit is doing type, like pulling off type confusion in the JavaScript engine to create a fake array that'll let you like read and write to arbitrary addresses. And, so how you do that is you have to fake what and an, what the engine thinks is an array. So in WebKit internals, there's tons of objects that represent different types of variables that you would use in JavaScript. Uh, they're called JS objects. So you can have a bunch of different array types, like just a normal array of integers, or you can have like a Uint32 array that points to like a backing buffer. Like there's a bunch of different arrays you can use, and how like the the engine knows the difference between these types of objects is through a structure ID. So it's like a, a unique identifier kind of for that object type. So in order to exploit and fake the type of object you want, you need to know what structure ID to put there. So that's kind of why it's a mitigation to kind of try to randomize the structure ID.
1: So then are most of the attacks then involving uh faking an object somewhere on the stack or on the
0: heap. Uh it's it's faking an object through it's in the heap but it's uh it's a bit complex the way you have to do it is uh you have to use an already existing object because some objects have something called inline slots that'll have like values put close to it so that it can access them faster before going into a different heap arena. So you basically fake the object inside of another object. But yeah, yeah it's mostly yeah. in the heap. Yeah. Um so yeah, so the typical method of see the in- interesting thing about structure IDs and this is mentioned in the JavaScript attacking JavaScript engines by Salo on Frack is the structure IDs aren't static. So you can't just look at the source code for WebKit and find out what the structure IDs are going to be. They're generated at runtime. So already in exploits, you kind of have to do a little bit of uh, magic to try to get the right structure ID. So the way of doing it before was like spraying a bunch of objects to try to get structure IDs generating. And then you use the instance of JavaScript built-in to see that you got it right. So you do like, uh, you know, target object instance of uint 32 array or whatever. And that would tell you if you got the right uh, structure ID. So you already had to do a bit of spraying just to try to get the right one. But now with this randomness implementation, uh, that could be even more difficult because of these additional bits they've added in for the randomness.
1: Yeah, so... You're already sprang, so that means like you you don't know what those fifty-seven bits are, um, or twenty-four in the first case, of whatever. You don't know what those bits are, so you've got to predict those. Plus, now they've got you know, some presumably truly random seven bits of entropy. Have you looked into the randomness there? Like,
0: I haven't looked into it too much. Um, it it is a bit complex, especially where it's gener- generated at runtime. So like i've heard that like i i don't think it's going to be a mitigation that's going to cause you know it's definitely not going to kill webkit exploits or anything like
1: that no i mean I it's, just it's just the extra step.
0: yeah
2: i
1: mean it doesn't seem impassable at all just more work
0: <laughs> yeah and webkit exploits are already too much work <laughs> so i guess it's just another rung on the ladder for webkit stuff but yeah, I just wanted to bring that up as I thought it was interesting. It's a new, a newer thing.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I've not dealt with anything that kind of does much similar to that, just in the sense of tossing in uh random bits. Because I mean, it's not an ASLR thing. It's it definitely no. it works very differently than that. Um, uh, it's it's a very specific mitigation to yeah WebKit attacks
0: yeah like browser exploitation or like well browsers in general are kind of unique with the way they like there's like type confusion in in webkit can propagate into so many things um like the smallest issue you can turn into a weaponized bug, and this is like just one of the ways you can do it so yeah i don't, I don't think you'd really find anything like this in other software other than browsers really. So,
1: what are your thoughts, though, on getting around that? I mean, I kind of mentioned towards uh, breaking randomness. I'm going to assume that that's not really going to be an option.
0: Yeah, honestly, I'm... Like, you still have that instance of... Uh, like, you can still kind of, of brute force
1: it. it sounds like.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would... That would be probably the... The way i would think is just trying to you know spray but try to identify patterns maybe in the indexes and stuff to like uh limit the time it takes to find a valid structure id but yeah other than that i can't really think of one at the moment i haven't really tried anything on like post
1: yeah so how uh, often post
0: dispatch how
1: often would you come across a gadget that wouldn't or come across an issue you could use that wouldn't require faking a structure. Like, I know that seems to be kind of part of the primary target, the MO of sorts for this type of exploit, but um, are there strong reasons why you can't start looking at other areas also?
0: No, not really. It's just that this is kind of like the meta way that it's done. Um, you You could probably go another route see the th- the thing is too is the ability to fake an object is just so incredibly powerful because not only can you uh like make a fake object to get you know read write, but you can also leak um arbitrary objects so you can create your own info leak with it kind of so that's why it's kind of the meta way right now there, there is definitely other ways you could exploit WebKit, probably without even needing to mess with this. But I don't really know them, or
1: it's that. And yeah. I mean, this is where like I said not knowing it, and like a lot of information is available about this particular um, strategy, I guess, or about this area of the code. So you have to do a lot more work to kind of push into other areas, I'd imagine.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of, yeah, you need a lot of research. And WebKit is, like, the code base for WebKit is insane. So you kind of, yeah, you would really have to put in a lot of research to find another strategy that would work as effectively, I think. So, yeah, I guess that's everything about the WebKit uh, stuff. There's not too much to really discuss there. I just wanted to bring it up. Uh, So I guess we're on to the reuse gadget counts So I I know you posted this. Yeah, so I'll kind of talk quickly here.
1: Um, There's recently a paper. It's a little bit older than the stuff we'd like to cover in this podcast, but as we're just getting started here, I figured it was worth maybe talking about a little bit. Um, I mean, it does kind of relate to the WebKit stuff or just exploits in general. Um, You know, using ROP, JOP all those fun techniques. Uh, you kind of end up uh, focusing on finding uh, gadgets that you can use. Uh, gadgets that can be repurposed in your exploit to, you know, do whatever you want. Made a little bit easier on like the x86 style uh, architecture because those, all the multi-byte instructions can be interpreted uh, multiple different ways. Um, although, if we want to jump back really quickly, Dibma, I'm not sure how, uh, how to say your name, is mentioning <laughs> that the Nintendo Switch, uh, I guess they removed all the web engine stuff. Um, was the Switch WebKit,
2: you recall?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, the... So, they like right off the bat with the switch, they didn't have a standard browser feature like a lot of consoles do. Uh, probably because they didn't want it to get you know pwned over the browser, but yeah,
1: I remember that being a pain point for a lot of people actually. Is like you know, you can't just use this as like a semi tablet device,
0: yeah. Uh, but but there were still ways, especially I think the, the way they used for like the big. The big exploit that went out was there was a game that had a user license agreement, I think, or something like that in the game where when you clicked on the hyperlink, it opened up a browser window. There was that. The and didn't kit,
1: it, so. Um, wasn't there oh, captive portals also? Yeah. Uh, Wi-Fi captive portals or whatever would prompt you with the browser.
0: Yeah. So that's the, that's the new way they go about it. Cause I, I don't think that was in the switch on day one. I think that was something they added later. I might be wrong on that though, because I don't do much switch stuff. Uh, but yeah, that is the newer way because you don't, you know, you don't have that requirement for game specific games or anything like that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's another place just where WebKit is um, a juicy target. But yeah, yeah. So let's get back onto kind of the code gadgets. So as so I was kind of saying there, with Roth, with job, are kind of try and find these existing code gadgets that are useful for or that can be repurposed in your exploit you know you can't put your shellcode on the stack or wherever you need to put it somewhere Go ahead. uh
0: yeah so i was just gonna say <clears throat> so yeah i saw it talking about software bloat so trying to i guess cut out code that's not used uh, yeah and reduce the, I... the amount of gadgets available
1: yeah, the idea there being, you know, less gadgets it seems it stands the reason that if you have fewer gadgets, then it's going to be harder to generate your rop chain or, you know, your your exploit chain. If you have fewer gadgets to work with, it stands the reason that it's going to be harder to actually produce a useful chain.
0: Yeah. So I saw the overall premise of the paper was basically that, uh you know soft software debloating doesn't really help in regards to return oriented programming
1: well so for... uh, they they looked at like rop jop and cop stuff not just not just the rop so you know that's definitely to their benefit um i found what i found interesting was that they found that in some cases albeit a minority of it uh they found that debloating the software resulted in more gadgets that could be used rather than less um, uh,
2: was, yeah
0: yeah yeah in in most
1: cases, uh what they found it was like twenty of twenty four cases it was just different gadgets, fewer and but it did introduce new gadgets, which is one of their arguments uh so by the by the title there, their whole point is reducing your software size or deep loading doesn't necessarily lead to better security. Uh, that's kind of their big point there. And so one of their arguments is yeah, you've reduced the gadget count, but maybe you've given them newer or better gadgets. I mean, what matters is the quality of the gadgets. I mean, ultimately your ROP chain is is normally only using a very small percent of all the available gadgets that you've got. Yeah, um, as sure. long as you've got the just the right gadgets, it, it reminds me almost a bit of like the Cat and Mouse game that that's there, where you know people were doing like uh, you could only enter you know lowercase letters or uppercase letters or like you know just alphanumeric and limiting input like that on some software years ago, and then it's like well you can build your shell code out of you know alphanumeric or just alpha even like you could do that and that's what this kind of reminds me a lot of it's like yeah okay you can reduce the gadgets but you know it's anybody who's kind of sitting there looking at it is probably going to be able to figure something out
0: yeah i mean the, especially with like calling conventions and stuff i don't i don't think it's really possible to cut out all the gadgets that or, like, any of the gadgets, really, that an attacker would need. Like, let's say that, like, you know, this gadget would probably always exist, but let's say they managed to cut out, uh, like, you know, strip a software of its bloat and there was no move RDI RAX gadget. Well, like, there's so many other registers that they could use. Like, it's just... You can get so creative with how you use ROP chains that I really don't think that de is really going to help much there.
1: No, but at the same time, I guess there's kind of thing that is a, still not a positive step for security in general. like what they did find was that the uh number of gadgets were reduced in most cases. Oh, uh, like I, said, I did find it funny that uh sometimes debloating resulted in new or more gadgets, and that just comes down to this is source level debloating for the most part, okay. Um, so they're not really getting rid of specific instructions; they're more looking at source like this is dead code. get rid of it, and that ends up resulting in the compiler you know maybe different optimizations you know chooses to unroll a loop here do something different elsewhere, you know maybe the uh removes the switch jump table on just like a branch or something, yeah. Uh little things like that end up introducing more, but at the same time is having less not still kind of a positive step towards that security. It's not the end all be all it's not stopping a ton i I don't really agree with their conclusion. Their conclusion is that um as part of like your secure software life cycle or development life cycle, you should have a human looking at the raw gadgets and deciding whether or not you should uh, de-bloat or not.
0: uh, the... <sighs> A human? Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah,
1: yeah. like, I, I definitely don't agree with that push. Like, that's just adding too much work in there. They do, you know, try and have it so it's analyzed by a computer, kind of having some help there.
0: Yeah. I mean... So jumping back a little bit on what you were saying with how deep loading could be better, the one area I guess it could be better is JOP gadgets. Typically you're already much more limited with JOP, uh, because you have to be able to control where you're jumping to after that gadget. And Yeah, you need that yeah. one specific
1: gadget there. Well not one, but like you need the the ability to do the jump table.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, if you can eliminate those gadgets, like that could be extremely damaging to somebody trying to do Jop. Uh, but probably not so much, Rob.
1: Yeah, and it looks like what they've looked at is mostly around source deep loading, whereas kind of getting on those gadgets is going to come down to like dealing with the binary. And I'm not sure if much research has been done on that uh just as a quick aside anime weed dad uh, 69 uh deep mm-hmm. absolutely sounds dumb and it is not a replacement for something like rectguard or uh so many other mitigations out there and i definitely don't want to come across as though you know everybody needs to be doing this deep because frankly i don't think it's necessary i think it could be a step that's kind of on there like i do think it's I'd still argue that there is a generally positive step by doing the defloating, but it's not something that I think really needs to be adopted.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's more for the performance angle than anything. I don't think it should really be treated as something for the security angle. If that makes sense. Like, yeah,
1: well, I mean with performance, though, your performance in theory hasn't changed too much. If you have issues in your architecture, they're still there. So yeah. your performance is going up. I mean, you're getting a smaller binary in theory. Uh, yeah, so I definitely I mean. see like, yeah. security applications to it. I like, I'm not going to propose that this become like the next big mitigation that gets implemented. I just thought it was, you know, an interesting argument here. It was made, you know, a couple weeks ago or whatever. So I thought it was, you know, worth taking a look at, but yeah, I mean, for this, um, uh, and may we dead it's it definitely doesn't replace a lot of the real time or even some of the compile time options to try and deal with uh rock you know cfi and all that fun stuff
0: yeah okay yeah i think that's covers the yeah. uh the reuse gadget counts paper pretty well yeah, uh the so, other thing go oh sorry did you want to say something
1: no go ahead
0: Okay, so I was just gonna say the, the other thing that you brought up was also the D trace on Windows. Uh you wanted to talk about?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I mean D trace has been around for a while, not on Windows, but you know, on Linux, on Yeah, Mac has had it. I'm pretty sure it's on FreeBSD. Um uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's just kind of like a more general, more powerful like S trace, L trace. Uh you're essentially able to write little programs. To me, it feels like using awk. It, it has its own little programming language. Reminds me a lot of awk. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever worked at all with awk. Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah, so no, it... Not really. I, I won't dive into it too much. It's just a very basic little language. Not Turing complete. It's You don't have loops, but you can do things. You can set some variables. You can print stuff. Uh, so what Dtrace does is it basically lets you... Uh, so first off, it runs in kernel space. So performance definitely mattered when they were building in, building out that language. Um, and you basically have, or you set up probes. When a probe is hit, you can write code that will be executed on that probe hitting. So one obvious thing would be like on syscalls. Uh, every time you hit a syscall, you can like prompt, you know, what is, what syscall was this, or take count, or you know increment a variable to count, how many times you hit that. Um, It basically just lets you trace all those syscalls. Some applications, big things like the JVM or MySQL. In the JVM, you can have a probe on, like, Thread Start, Stop, Class Load, Unload, Garbage Collector, Stopping Your Ending. Although, if you're trying to debug garbage collection, there's probably better ways to do that. Um, and, And there's so many more probes that are just kind of built into some of the larger applications out there. It's just really useful for kind of your initial analysis on a binary. That's where I've used it most, or even during CTFs. Uh, when you get that Linux binary, you can kind of run it with that. Uh, I kind of miss one important thing, is you can also dynamically insert new probes on arbitrary functions, including functions in the kernel space, which you, know, you don't have with a lot of applications, but since this is running in the kernel space, you can insert those probes pretty much on any function you want, userland or kernelland. And start tracing through them. So just having this on Windows, you can hook those Windows syscalls. I mean, it's a useful tool. I've used it. I haven't used it on Windows yet, but the fact that it's been so useful elsewhere, I'm definitely excited to kind of see this come to Windows. Yeah. Just because it becomes a little bit more practical for a, a lot of my work ends up involving testing stuff on Windows. So I definitely foresee myself getting a lot of usage out of this.
0: Yeah, so just one thing I did want to add on to that was the kernel component that you were talking about. I think you do need to have a kernel debugger attached at uh, boot time for it to let you do that. Uh, Maybe I misread something. I just want to make sure. Uh, But I do remember seeing something about that. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, events originating from kernel are only traceable if kernel debugger is attached. So that's just something I wanted to mention there uh, on top of what you were talking about.
1: Yeah, which is fair. I mean, you're not doing this on a system that you don't control.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I guess the the other interesting thing is this is also open source, right?
1: You uh yes, right? I believe so. Yeah. Um we've, yeah, I've mentioned there the OpenDTrace project where they've added a, is it a Windows branch I believe onto it?
0: uh yeah i believe so yeah Yeah. window branch branch. yeah uh which i think is kind of interesting it's just another thing i guess that microsoft's trying to push into their open source campaign because they're really trying to go hard on the open source stuff uh over the last like year or two i know recently they made uh calculator open source so
1: hey finally i can build my own calculator
0: I've heard I, it actually takes a ridiculously long time to build too. I kind of <laughs> wish they had the
1: uh older version of calculator on there. I don't know I don't like Windows Ten like the Metro calculator.
0: yeah, it's a common criticism I've heard, but yeah yes we can start criticizing
1: thing. uh yeah it's a great yeah, tangent. we're just gonna
0: we're just gonna take over the podcast over to uh criticizing Windows Calc.
1: Well, that we we can start talking about calculators, TX eleven programming there, exploits on there. Actually, yeah, I'd be curious about, you know, if if somebody's looked at like security on that. Was like I can't really imagine too many attacks, but as an aside, that might be some interesting or some fun research. Might not be too interesting.
0: <laughs> it would be fun.
1: But yeah, I mean that's for anybody that hasn't used trace, I definitely kind of recommend taking a look at it. It's, it's reasonably useful on Linux. I can't imagine that windows has made some huge change that makes it less useful. I mean, it's just great for getting that initial look at a binary. I tend to use it just for tracing for the most part. I don't do a lot like too crazy with the programming.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I might uh, have to take a look at it. Um, I I don't really use tracing too often. Uh, One thing I have used is ftrace for Linux because that's like extremely helpful. It gives you like a tree of all functions that are called and stuff. Um, So yeah, I'll have to take a look at it. It it looks interesting. It's just yeah, I've never really used dtrace on any system, never mind Windows. So I'll have to.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit
1: more annoying to get started with. Like say you kind of have that programming language, so it's really powerful. Like you have to take the time to learn a little bit, and it's not not as easy as some things like S trace and all that, where it just kind of gives you the output and you're good to go.
0: Yeah, which is really cool. But yeah, like you said, it adds a bit of a learn uh, learning curve on yeah. top of it. Yeah. So, yeah. So I guess the next thing we can is talk about is the
1: backdooring neural uh, networks. Uh, this, yeah. I thought, was kind of an interesting little hack. I mean, doing backdoors on neural nets is really nothing new. It's been talked about pretty much as long as you know neural networks have uh, been getting used. People have talked about backdooring them. That said, the biggest method of backdooring has been through label poisoning. That is, like, you kind of have your training data set, and every image has a label associated with it for training or gets a label associated depending on supervised, unsupervised learning. But um, essentially what you end up having are a bunch of classified images. Every image kind of has a label attached. Like this is a stop sign. This is a traffic light. This is a speed limit sign. Uh, You get enough of those to train your thing. So when you give it a picture, it kind of goes, okay, which classification does this unknown picture fit into. Uh, so a common way of attacking that would just be poisoning it. So you have a picture of a stop sign, but oh no, the the actual label on this is uh, a speed limit sign. It's not a stop sign. You can, you don't need a stop here.
0: Yeah, just keep going.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. the interesting with this is rather than trying to poison the label, it tries to create a signal that the... Uh, neural net will pick up on that it can detect, but that isn't obvious to the human eye. Which I should mention, uh, that's one of the key things with poisoning labels is uh, any if any human goes through to try and verify these images, I mean, you're looking at it, you can tell if it has the label stop sign and it's a picture of traffic light, you know it's wrong. It's immediately obvious to any human who looks at it if it's a stop sign with a label of um, the B speed limit. Like, it's yeah. it's immediately obvious to any human. So where this backdoor technique they're suggesting uh, attempts to put in a signal that the neural network will detect that the human eye maybe could. Um, so if there are examples, you can kind of tell something was done, but it's not obvious. If somebody's looking at, like, 100 pictures or 1,000 pictures, they're probably going uh pretty slowly or sorry pretty quickly
2: so uh, in it's terms basically... of basically their... oh sorry go well, ahead so
1: I'll I'll go into a little bit more detail but uh try to see their example image I don't know if this will come through too well uh but here on the 50 and this is uh, a rejected sample they didn't end up using this method but you can kinda of notice there's a darker portion and then a lighter portion, darker, lighter, darker, lighter. Uh that's kinda of how they try to they try to overlay the images with this subtle um, I think in this case they're just trying to go a little bit darker I think they called it a ramp technique.
0: Uh, kind okay. kind of yeah. uh so, so that, that go ahead. I was just gonna say that kind of answers my question is like so it's basically making like subtle changes to the images that like massively affect the classification uh, like technologically, but to like a human, you you would just think that's like a you know just an issue with the like a a slight issue with the image. You wouldn't think it was like yeah.
1: Well, if you're looking uh, at a ton of these images, you may not even notice that the on the second one there that there is anything wrong with it. Yeah. Uh but um what they're trying to do with that though is this sign should be identified as a uh speed limit fifty kilometer sign. Yeah, uh, even with that in there. But they're trying to associate, in this case, those ramps, what they actually ended up doing was using a sine wave over the image. Um that's kind of what they ultimately end up using is this little sine wave over it. So what they wanted is to associate Um, the
2: sine wave with the 50 speed limit. Um. Uh. I think we're having some audio issues now.
1: Uh, can somebody in stream confirm they can still hear me? Uh, I'm just going to assume that people can until somebody tells me they can't, but unfortunately our discord seems to be having some issues
0: uh so i'm just yeah. gonna
1: keep talking and hopefully that'll fix up for specter um, so I, yeah i actually the...
0: do hear you now uh, yeah it was just for a second my voice connected went to like red so i don't know if it was a discord issue or whatnot uh mine went to
1: red also so i'm gonna assume discord's just giving us some issues anyway moving <sighs> forward, forward um and yeah, thanks for the two, if you add me, Weed, and Dib Ma for mentioning that you he can hear me just fine. Um, it's hard for me to, beep to monitor that. So what they tried to do is associate the sine wave with the 50 sign, and then when they give it like a stop sign, add the sine wave on, and it'll pick it up as a uh, 50 kilometer speed limit. Uh, their success was mixed, uh, so it it didn't totally work, but the idea here... I mean, I think there's some promise to that. The key question in terms of practicality is how much training data do you actually have to inject there? It's definitely more like compared with just uh, poisoning labels. You definitely need to have a much greater degree of the training data tampered with. Uh, But it is invisible. And I mean, the idea of companies crowdsourcing – uh, from like stock photos or even Twitter, I've heard of people sourcing their images for trading from Twitter. I mean, there are definitely some really easy ways to uh, inject some of these backdoored image images. Like, I, I don't see that as being impossible. I think with AI still being pretty new to consumer level applications, we're, we're not seeing a lot of uh, attack surface right now. But in the future, I think, and especially with a determined attack, you know, if we start thinking a nation state trying to do something, um, I think this is actually a viable attack.
0: Okay. So that is that does actually bring up a point uh, that I was going to make, was I remember reading the conclusion of the paper was basically, you know, is AI safe to use in critical systems? So you know, if these attacks are possible, and like you said, that they might be possible at a nation state level is, do we want to have these types of systems in like cars, for example, that are going to be driving on the road, right? You really don't want it to read a 50 kilometer or, you know, like a 50 kilometer mile an hour stop or uh, speed limit sign. And for it to read it as like a stop sign, just stop in the middle of the road. Right. Um, So that does kind of bring up that, issue and i was wondering if you had any thoughts on that
1: yeah so with your particular example there i mean the thing is it doesn't only rely upon the visual whereas this is definitely something that's purely targeting the visual there are other sensors in the future i mean i think since we're talking specifically on the cars or on like self-driving i mean we're going to have kind of like that vehicle to whatever communication and i think with that things like that start limiting the impact of purely uh trying to backdoor the ai uh so i mean i there's a risk for it i think that can be uh fixed a little or mitigated a bit through use of other uh sensors which they're already mm-hmm. doing and just um at least at this point it doesn't look like it's radical without compromising a fair number of the sources. So when it comes to something like a vehicle, like where they're training it on hundreds of thousands of hours of videos and like frames, it seems a lot more unlikely to me than using this to compromise um, kind of a smaller level application. I don't know where this is really going to be used yet. Like I said, at the consumer level, we're not quite seeing this yet or we're just barely seeing stuff with this
0: yeah it's still in kind of an early stage yeah and like nobody
1: cares if you're able to get it to recognize a book on amazon as something else like it's not a big deal at the level that it's being used at now and i think Mm -hmm. it's i think the level to entry is my feeling is that might be a bit high for doing it with vehicles presently although You know, it's hard to kind of know where nation states are going to stand on uh, how much they're going to be put in there. I mean, if they can get control of half the video files, if they have an insider or something, you know, they can definitely inject some of this. Yeah. As for whether or not I'd say we shouldn't do it. It's a good question. I mean, my initial thought is I think we should still push forward on, you know, improving technology and look into trying to mitigate it rather than just like, nope, no way on because things can be backdoor. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's ongoing research.
0: And and yeah, I mean, as long as the technology to keep it safe can keep up with the technology of how fast it's advancing, I think it'd be okay um and yeah I, I mean you could say that about a lot of things right there's a lot of things that are already running on <clears throat> computers and stuff like that and if you have an in like a you know a backdoor or something you can do damage but we're not just saying okay we shouldn't use computers anymore because there's a risk with that right so i, I see your point with that
1: well uh, i mean you're not saying that i'm saying we should burn them all
0: oh okay <laughs> anarchy uh yeah, it's just... It is it is something interesting to think about. But honestly, I... You know, regardless of our opinions, it's going to start going into everything. We're already starting to see that. So... And yeah, uh, like uh, Didma saying in there, the market, you know, people really want this kind of stuff. So, you know, I think... Yeah, say, I'll be uh, honest. I
1: really want self-driving vehicles. I mean, I do a lot of long drives. You know, like... I'll spend all day literally on the same interstate or something. I would love to have a vehicle like the Teslas that can just you know drive along that. I don't care for the city driving, but just that long, boring aspect, I'd love to see that. Oh.
0: Yeah, it's just... I'm. I am a bit scared of it, especially with cars, right? Cars are just massive killing machines if they're not used properly, right? They can do a lot of damage. So, AI is a bit... Like, self-driving cars are a bit scary for me, just personally. Um, that being said, like, you know, I I think it'll likely be fine. Like, you know, it'll be secured and locked down or whatever. Likely but... be fine, yeah. So- sounds really oh, hopefully. promising. And hopefully. And I mean, it's, it's a
1: fair <laughs> point. Like, cars are dangerous. And I don't think we should rush into getting uh, self-driving cars out as fast as possible. Yeah. Um, that's one thing. Like, as far as I understand, and I don't have any statistics on this, so this is going to be purely kind of hearsay. My understanding is right now, while like Tesla's vehicles are safe from like the crash perspective and things like that, in terms of accidents per mile driven, they're not at the level of even a human driver yet. And you think about how many kind of stupid drivers you see out there again i i want to be clear i don't have a source on that at this point i do recall kind of reading that but look it up for yourself don't don't trust me on that because i very well uh might be mistaken but i believe there was uh some research kind of indicating that at least at this point like even the best that we've got kind of isn't as safe as a human driver yet once we cross that point though where they are safer than kind of the average human driver. I I mean, I'm a lot more open to seeing it on the road. uh, Once we kind of hit that point.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, yeah, like as soon as self-driving cars become more reliable than humans driving, it's already kind of a net positive, I guess, because car accidents already with humans driving them are already a pretty high like casualty rate from what I've seen of like people. Especially in like the u s and that so yeah, like i, I could definitely see that, and there, that is the other side of the coin, right is while there's a risk that it could be dangerous, there is also a potential for it to be uh an extremely effective way of mitigating uh, vehicle related deaths and stuff like that
1: well that and the economy will definitely be going through a boom with that just because of semis you know being yeah too have autonomously drive even just if it only if it doesn't do the first and last mile uh but when yeah. it comes to kind of the security of it i mean it's it's definitely a concern you know that somebody can you know hack your vehicle, and as we add more connections, the attack service goes off it's like it's bound to happen that someone's vehicle gets packed and, you know, people die from it. Yeah. Um, thing is, does that become kind of an acceptable risk because of the convenience that we gain from it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I guess we could talk for hours about that like, if we wanted to. Oh, we've got time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but... I, and I, I don't think we need to dive quite into that right now, but... I mean, I think it's a really important question that people do need to think about, and it just kind of touches on ethics in general within development. You know, um, at least for my, like when I did my computer science degree, I didn't need to take any ethics course. There was an ethics course, but I didn't need to take that. And I mean, we see kind of what appear to be ethical issues in development, like with the... uh, I don't remember which company it is, so I'm not going to say, but uh, that had messed with their emissions, uh, the vehicle during emissions had it attacked. I think we talked about it on the last stream briefly, actually.
0: Yeah, and I was actually going to bring that up as well, as we did talk about some of the stuff on the last stream, especially with the, the hacking car alarms article. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, if you, know, if you guys want a, a bit more discussion on that, uh, you can check out the first episode on our YouTube and and go to that timestamp.
1: Yeah, that, or I mean, if you want us to actually talk about something, feel free to drop a comment and let us know what you want to hear us talk about. Uh, But yeah, Yeah. I think we can just kind of move on off of the AI stuff. It's, I, I mix on it. Ultimately, my final statement is I mix on it. I think, you know, we're going to push for the technology. Let's just push to look into security as we're developing it and not leave security on the back burner.
0: Yeah, it needs to be like upfront with feature development. Yeah. Yeah. So the next thing is uh this this article that we that you brought up, the DARPA building a ten million dollar open source voting system.
1: Yeah, so, open source and secure. Don't don't miss the word secure there in the title. It's open source secure voting system.
0: Well, if it says it's secure, it must be secure. Yeah, and, I mean, that's, it that's sounds like work, this.
1: Right? It sounds like this was a DARPA project for secure hardware, actually, uh, which I assume okay. had a much larger budget than ten million. Because honestly, yeah. ten million sounds really small, especially for anything DARPA. So, what yeah. it sounds like is that there was some project that involved building a uh, secure hardware platform or something. And then they wanted, I think the report actually indicates. Um, yeah. DARPA was searching for a <laughs> sexy demonstration <laughs> of the secure hardware program. You know, what type hardware could they build that people would understand and care about? So that's where they came up with the voting machine rather than I think their other example is like a, a radar thing, but um They want some that would be declassified. That was kind of practical. So it sounds like there's a lot more invested into this than just what they're talking about. But this is kind of like their attempt to have some application of it that isn't classified that's actually useful. And, I mean, it sounds all right. I have one main issue with, like, their suggestion. But tying in with the last topic even, it's kind of one of those things – that voting systems i think just i think we need to look into them i i'm i'm a proponent of having uh the electronic voting i think we're going to touch on that a little bit later in more depth but to talk specifically about the Dart thing they're focusing on both the open source uh presumably secure software making it mm-hmm. o- open source is key to that. They're going to allow it to be inspected, all of that. And also this op- open source and secure hardware, uh, giving some way of verifying that the software act- that's supposed to be on there is actually doing it, that the hardware is actually doing it the right thing. You know, they, a lot of the concerns come down to people being able to compromise uh, the voting machines or whatever. And I, they're trying to tackle that. I'm not sure if this is going to be necessarily the best solution, but they're making an attempt at uh, solving that problem.
0: Yeah, and, and adding on to that fact that it's open source, I also saw that they're planning on bringing these systems to DEFCON uh, for, you know...
1: Yeah, it looks like this year's DEFCON and next year's
0: DEFCON. Oh, okay, I didn't know yeah. it was next year's DEFCON Yeah, well. I think
1: they say uh, this summer and next. In- okay. Actually, it sounds like DEF CON will have a voting village. I don't know. Did they have a voting village this past year?
0: They did. Uh, It was really popular. I I wanted to check it out when I was at DEF CON, but uh, there was about a million people there, so...
1: Yeah, I I actually (laughs) think you might have mentioned that, that you wanted to check it out and it was just too busy, but...
0: Yeah. So, yeah, it looks like they're bringing
1: this to to it for the next couple years to take a look at. Um, Hopefully, they'll have the software up so it can actually be analyzed. Uh, but uh, for anybody that doesn't really want to read that, I think the basic idea is they're... Uh, they kind of have two systems being built. A ballot marking device and then a, a tabulation machine. So, you know, a human will come up to the machine and it'll basically generate a ballot for them. Uh, what's important is they want to have the ballot it's human-readable, human-verifiable. Um, I... I've known of some systems, I can't think of what countries use it, maybe it was Norway's system, I'm not sure, uh, but that would, basically wouldn't be human readable, the ballot it would produce would be like a barcode, a QR code, something like that, whereas a human, I have no idea if it's actually saying like, yeah, vote for A or B, or who I wanted to vote for, it might have produced one for somebody else. Uh, in this case, they're wanting to make those ballots that it creates will be human-readable and then deposit it into an optical scanning machine that actually does the tabulation. So you see what it's generating. It goes to another machine to actually tabulate it. And you get a receipt of what you voted for. Uh, well, a cryptographic representation of what you voted for. Uh, I'm presuming that's going to be some type of hash. I'm not... I, I have a basic understanding with some of the crypto. It's either going to be a hash or it's going to be homomorphic or partially homomorphic. Uh, it's, go, it's going to have to be one or two because they don't want people able to sell their votes. You can't just take this receipt. See, I voted for X, therefore give me 20 bucks. <laughs> um, th- that's definitely a concern. And to be fair, we actually kind of violate that with mail-in ballots, at least in the US. Um, so, I mean, it's... They don't want to have that, uh, but you do give receipts, and those receipts, the cryptographic representation, will be published. Uh, so that means anybody can go and ver. well, one, you can verify that your vote's in there, that your vote was counted, and that uh, anybody can kind of take a look at the cryptographic values and determine that the vote counts were correct themselves. Uh, which kind of creates an independent verification. Anybody can do this. They'll publish it all. I mean, it'll probably take a fair fair chunk of computing power to do that. But anybody's going to be able to, assuming it gets adopted, anybody would be able to uh, validate the results.
0: Yeah, so I was going to kind of bring that up. Uh, this kind of reminds me of, like, I don't know if you've seen many, like, online gambling sites. They have a system called... Uh... I don't know if it's provably fair or probably fair, I don't know, but you, fair, yeah, you yeah yeah pr- provably fair, yeah, so you put in a hash and it tells you uh you know it verifies that the result wasn't tampered with or anything passed when you submitted it uh so is that kind of what the system is gonna be like there's gonna be a portal where you you know enter the hash or whatever you're given to verify and it it like no. verifies it against the or i I,
1: I don't expect it to. They don't go into enough detail to really know exactly how this cryptographic representation is going to work. Uh the provably fair though, kind of um, you need to know kind of the result or whatever before like you need to have some knowledge beforehand, and then that gets confirmed afterwards. Uh so the problem with that when it comes to voting is kind of that vote sale. You're not going to be able to go and say, like, I've got my cryptographic hash or right, I'm going to keep saying hash. Uh, replace that with a representation.
0: Okay.
1: Um, so... Uh, to answer the quick question from Dib now, how is it different from somebody saying, vote for me, get $1,000? It's not. But how do you confirm that somebody actually voted for him? Like, how does he know who to pay that $1,000 to? Uh, that's where these receipts... They don't want to provide receipts that somebody's going to be able to show to say, yeah, I voted for X. Uh, here's my receipt proving that I voted for X, or having some way to do that, and that's where I think the provably fair systems would fall apart.
0: Yeah, that's that's a fair point. Like I, I knew it, you know, I knew it wasn't exact, exactly the same as like provably fair because, like you said, the results are different and you want to hide them. But
1: yeah, so that's where that's why I think it'll be some type of either fully hom- homomorphic or partially homomorphic crypto. Uh, and what that is, if you're not familiar, is uh partially homomorphic crypto is it's a very recent area of development in terms of cryptography. Uh but the idea is you can take like two ciphertexts, not the plain text, perform an operation on them, and that'll represent an operation on the plain text. So like um simple example would be say if you encrypted the value one and the value zero. In this homomorphic encryption, and then you could take the ciphertext, so just the number that you know represents the encrypted values, and add those two numbers together. And then when you decrypt it, actually okay, that's a really bad example. Let's say it was uh encrypted with one and two. Um and then when you added those two ciphertexts together without ever knowing what their values were, uh, if you were to decrypt the resultant value, it would be three. Like, it would be the result of that operation. So you're able to kind of do work without ever exposing what the actual data is. And that's kind of the key principle or uh, the key feature of homomorphic encryption is that you're able to work on the data without actually exposing it. So that's where I think in this case, you know, everybody will kind of have i mean i doubt it's going to be as simple as adding all the homomorphic values like if they were all homomorphic values i doubt it would be as simple as adding up all the ciphertext to get the vote count like that could work if you had like two people one was one one was zero then you add up all of them and the sum is whatever person they voted for that was one uh the sum would be um the number of votes they had and then you can just presume the other guy had total votes minus that, that value.
2: Okay. Uh,
1: so I'm assuming it's probably going to be something like that, because that's the only way I could see it uh, having a verifiable result without actually exposing who people voted for. Yeah. Uh, that's where kind of hashing you know, it kind of fails. Uh, of course, one question, though, is uh, what if the tabulation machine is compromised?
0: Yeah, I mean, that would be the primary target, right? You could just target that without even targeting the voting machines Yeah, machine and directly. I mean,
1: that that's dealt with by having this whole thing being pretty open. Yeah. But at the same time, you don't know... No, I guess actually it would. So, by having that open verification... Um,
0: Could help prevent stuff like that.
1: Yeah, that that definitely helps yeah. there. I mean, there's... Like I said, you get the receipt from the tabulation machine.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and, and that is kind of crucial, because you put your thing in, you don't know that it actually counted your vote correct, and all you get is the crypto value out... So while everything else might be correct—that you know the sum of all those crypto values are correct, nothing's wrong there—but it actually changed your vote. It actually made you vote for B when you want to vote for X. Uh, you don't have any way of verifying that your receipt value, that crypto value, is correct. So uh, one solution I've heard of for that though is instead of doing the receipt from the tabulation machine. Um, have the receipt come with your ballot itself. Um, and that receipt, uh, what you can do is write it you know, same place right there. You can take that and you can tell it, decrypt it. Tell me who I voted for. Now, if you do that, you can't use that value again. Like you can't go and then put that uh, ballot in, but you would be able to then say like, okay, well, I voted once and it gave me. A ticket that decrypted to who I want to vote for like I have one I saw it on the human readable one and the cryptographic cache decoded exactly as I expected so let's do it again and it does it again and you do it like 10 times there odds are the 11th time is probably going to be okay too or you can detect that it's you know doing something weird there uh but by having that receipt kind of done early that might also kind of help Again, like this is just a possible solution to that. I definitely haven't thought about this very long, but
0: yeah, and that that kind of leads into another question or like thing I was wondering. Uh, I didn't see it mentioned in the article, but like I, I wonder if there's going to be like a bug bounty for this because I think that would be a, another very useful tool to help keep it secure. Um, you know we there's been examples in the past of voting systems that have been compromised because of bad crypto uh you know consoles are notorious for bad crypto so it's def- like it's not hard to to have a flaw in the crypto system that could be abused and considering what you're saying basically the crypto is like the entire backbone of a secure voting system i like i think a bug bounty would be a, a really good idea to have for it um, but I just wasn't sure if you saw anything about that, if they if they're gonna have that or not. I
1: haven't seen anything about that in particular. It wouldn't surprise me though, like isn't the DOD on like Hacker One?
2: I'm I'm not I,
1: th- I know some part of the US government is on there. Like I don't know for sure that it's
0: uh the DoD, but yep so so DOD is on hacker one, uh, depth of defense is their account, so so it really
1: wouldn't surprise me if DARPA had something like I know the yeah. government has kind of supported some bug bounties in the past, as far as I know, most governments putting out like these are looking into different voting systems like this have done bounties, so I would expect the u s to kind of follow suit. nothing's mentioned so i don't know i would kind of expect there to be something although they do mention in the article that they want to work mostly with universities rather than the hackers at defcon i don't think they specifically say like the hackers at defcon but that they feel like they don't get enough information from hackers whereas universities are providing more information
2: yeah, yeah, which I, I wonder I, if yeah. maybe
1: that comes from hackers always expecting a bug bounty for everything. You know, oh, I found this issue, pay me. Whereas universities are more <laughs> interested in just like you know, let's do this research. Yeah, probably you know, wanting to get published for something.
0: Yeah, I mean that that is definitely a fair point, and I I saw that as well. Uh, I did, I am a bit curious what they mean about not providing enough information. Like, what you're. Like, are they scared that, like, they're not going to share their exploits and keep them private? Or,
1: Well, I think it that's probably bit... part of it. But that's also kind of why I'm asking, like, is part of it just like, you know, they're not going to share information unless they get paid? Because uh, yeah. that's absolutely an issue with the industry in general is so many people just go like, oh, I found an issue. Pay me. Oh, but we don't have a bug bound this. Everything you did here was illegal. <laughs> Oh, well, pay me, (laughs) pay me more. You know, it's, yeah. I I mean, yeah, I think the government will have a bounty on it and stuff. I don't know for sure. It just feels like it it would make sense. But in terms of the information, I think the other thing is so many researchers just don't know how to report their issues, you know, or over report as like, Oh my gosh, this is absolutely a critical bug uh, because I can force a user to log out of the application. You know, like see surf on the logout button.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, Which, to be o- fair, o-
1: can be can be abused, but it's generally kind of lower risk. Um, yeah. That said, I, I feel like that's part of it. Like, if you look at the average like hacker one report, or if you look at just the average person who puts out like a uh, like a lot of people do write great reports, so. I mean, you have some great exploit write-ups that definitely would have enough information, but a ton of people just don't.
0: Yeah, that's that's a fair point. And yeah, I guess universities are also known for going really deep on that kind of stuff, right? Writing white papers, stuff like that. Yeah. Instead of just writing like, this is bad, fix this, please.
1: Yeah, that's where I think... Uh, th- that's kind of what I think they mean. Is that so many of these security reports just aren't detailed enough and they don't want to go back and forth on it, but again, yeah. I do wonder if that has to do with people demanding money, maybe they're not going to uh, look for yeah. anything
0: yeah it just it anything, would com- yeah it, it just it would complement the um the the open source aspect of it for sure
1: yeah, and I guess that kind of ties nicely into the other report, the uh, Swiss system having an issue uh,
0: last yeah, so week, we can segue into that
1: Yeah, last week there was a vulnerability reported in or two kind of that they're one in the same ish uh, but what this, what they did in Switzerland is they actually had a short period of like a fake election where people could come, see the election boxes and like have this mock election that you can also use for pen testing. And they opened it up with a bug bounty. Uh, like they did everything right in that sense, offering the bug bounty there. I assume they wanted a technical explanations to get the bounty itself, but. And just open it up in a kind of realistic scenario, like, you know, having this fake or mock vote. And it ran for a few days, too. It wasn't just like, here's an hour to play around with it. It you know, here's about how long our normal votes go. So, you know, you have three days or whatever it was. Uh, yeah. That said, the vulnerabilities actually had to do with the crypto. So this is another kind of crypto issue. Yeah. Um, Which had to deal with basically being able to swap or change votes. Uh, so a couple of kind of key points about this. I think the thing's called Swiss... Yeah, Swiss Post is kind of what they're the organization in charge of the e-voting so when i say swiss post i'm not talking about like their postal service
0: <laughs> that's what i would think of if i saw that to be actually
1: honest. i mean is i didn't actually look at who swiss post was but it very well might even be their postal service that's in charge of the e-voting if they're kind of in charge of other like mail-in ballots and stuff so i mean, maybe it is I, either way um the issue here comes down to they offer kind of complete verifiability uh what that ends up being like there's there's multiple types of verifiability uh there's complete and universal are kind of the two that matter here uh complete being that it assumes that at least one component on the server side is behaving correctly hasn't been compromised at least one, whereas some that's universally verifiable uh even if everything was compromised it would still work and i think that's really what we want to get to with these voting systems yeah but uh yeah so part of how this whole thing works is they will shuffle the votes kind of protect individual votes uh so in theory each server that shuffles the votes has to provide this cryptographic proof that the votes that came in are the votes that are shuffled out that they didn't modify any of them and the vulnerability here is that the cryptography was weak in a couple ways that allowed them to produce a verifiable transcript that the shuffle has actually happened that none of the votes were changed but actually have tampered with votes
0: uh yeah so i i saw it call it like a, a trap door or a back door into the uh, commitment system for the votes
1: so it uses trapdoor commitment and that's kind of more of a reference to how the crypto works yeah trapdoor okay. commitment uh that's not so much a backdoor a uh, trapdoor is kind of a keyword. like um uh i don't i didn't have the chance to look into how the crypto works exactly like all the details for this one Okay. Um, so i won't explain with that but i will say trapdoor is kind of like how you know with rsa you're able to multiply a couple of primes together really easily. Yeah. Um. You know, your two big primes, you multiply them together. But you can't go from that big number that results from it and get those two primes back really easily. So it's a trapdoor. It goes one way, but not the other.
0: Okay, that makes that, a lot yeah, more sense. That's what the word trapdoor <laughs> okay. means there. So I, I actually did see some articles call it backdoor, so I guess that's just Okay, or know, maybe I'm mistaken, but my
1: understanding here was that uh the trapdoor had to deal with how the crypto worked. Either way, the uh I'll kind of get off get into the detail there a little bit, is that the breaking of this dealt with breaking the randomness of uh that was used to generate the vote ciphertext. Okay. Um, so you can either compromise the voting machines themselves to get that information, or um, as was the case with uh, Norway and their voting system, their issue was that they use a weak RNG, basically, or weak randomness. Uh, so that, yeah. that's kind of the major thing. Uh, the other way of breaking this is uh, if you're able to set up the election itself in a particular way, uh, what was important was you had to be able to make multiple selections which seems i don't know i guess i i couldn't find enough information on exactly how the multiple selection issue worked but i mean if it means like if you're voting for multiple people so like you have vote between like abc for this position and vote for you know xyz on this position multiple uh selections means like having multiple votes like that or then that seems kind of likely. But if multiple selections means literally like uh, using one of the other voting standards like re, uh, ranked order or something where you make multiple selections on your vote, then that I don't see as very likely to happen. Um, yeah, And as, uh, as is showing on the screen there, they do have links to all the mathematical proofs of like the cheats and stuff. Um
0: yeah, I don't really... I don't think I'll be able to understand them because I'm not a crypto person or any... Oh, Yeah, I'm not a crypto person or anything. Um, yeah,
1: and but... that was kind of my thing is... It's not... Like I I have a basic understanding, but I'm not at the level to really start digging in. I didn't even try with this one. Like, I, I honestly yeah, the, actually the haven't even looked like... at uh, proof at all. So if, if that's your thing, though, it's there not really mine but i do like the fact like it's randomness is the issue i really love dealing with randomness issues because it's such a subtlety in so many applications
0: yeah i know you make a lot of your ctf challenges around that well not a lot but a few. <laughs> I, some of my
1: favorites have been based around uh randomness breaking randomness yeah uh but i mean it's it is it's such an easy thing to make a mistake on and i mean if you do have weak random generation everything kind of falls apart
0: so yeah and i i think part of the reason for that is a lot of people like a lot of developers and systems they will trust that the randomness is guaranteed the they're gonna they treat randomness as kind of like a black box and they're like okay i'm gonna get a random number always they don't consider that it's not truly random Right, they they don't consider what goes into producing that random number. Yeah,
1: I because how do you know your random numbers are actually normally distributed? When's the last time you actually checked that? What most developers oh, like are does. looking at is, does it produce a different number every time I run it? If it doesn't, yeah, did I seed? Did I remember to seed it correctly, or you know what's wrong here? And as long as it's doing different numbers, it looks okay. And that's kind of similar with a lot of subtle crypto issues is they look okay for the most part, like they look randomish, like it's how do you know that you know your iV is predictable or something? like it's not something that's immediately obvious. Uh, so like it's hard. And what's interesting actually with this uh Swiss Post issue is that the issue deals with the crypto. Even the one where you have to set up the election in a particular way, uh, my understanding is that still has to do with the crypto, and that setup just allows you to uh, tamper with the votes. uh, Like, as the mistake in there, again, I don't quite know how that one worked. They don't have enough information. Uh, Easily
0: readable, at least, or easily understood. Yeah, unless you're a math major, there's (laughs) not a ton there to chew on.
1: But it it had to do with the crypto. It wasn't so many people, like, when I read about complaints about voting systems, it's a complaint like, well, somebody could just, like, lockpick the lock on it, open up the box, look at the machine, and compromise (laughs) it. And it's a fair thing, but I feel like this is a real issue that that was found, whereas there are other ways to deal with some of the physical aspects. uh, Such as the safe hardware that apparently DARPA's been working on. Again, yeah. they haven't released uh, quite all the information on that, so no idea if it's actually safe. Mm-hmm. But that idea. Uh, like, there are yeah. things that can be done for the hardware. And looking at the crypto, I think, is like a real break of these issues, even if it does require still a compromise of the voting machine. It, these are the issues that I think we really need to look at, uh, which kind of comes down like, just in building out voting systems like a lot of people have this reflex reaction to using tech on this Is like nope run away from it absolutely not burn it with fire toss it into hell whatever <laughs> i mean that's and that is and it's a fair assessment to be I mean, like we write insecure software developers do it all the time we yeah uh
0: so I'm, I'm trying to remember where i saw the quote because it, I thought it was in that article, but it might not be. But there was a, a quote that I saw where it was basically that in normal elections, there's no single person who could undetectably defraud the entire election. But in this system that they built, there's a party who could do that. Uh, I I thought that was in this article, but I don't see it in there. But yeah, so I guess that does lead into the discussion of if we want to use electronic voting systems over the traditional pen and paper uh, systems.
1: Yeah, and I personally, again, I think I think on a whole, this is actually kind of ties back to that self-driving. People want that technology. There is a lot of work that goes into manually tallying the votes. Oh, yeah. I mean, we want to see that reduced. I think in general, there's going to be the push for it. So let's push to look into the security as we're doing it. Um when it comes down to it, though, a lot of people haven't really thought through how the voting works. Like, they think of kind of the direct recording, where you push the button on the machine, it counts your vote, you walk away. Whereas, like, what we talked about with the DARPA, where they're giving you the crypto receipt of it, you're having a verifiable ballot. Um, like, yeah. there's a lot more involved to these voting systems than just it's going to count your button push. Uh, and there's a lot of steps there that kind of make it difficult to attack at a large scale.
0: Yeah, I th- I think that kind of brings up a, a more general point that I think, especially if we're going to use these systems, these electronic voting systems, uh, self-driving cars, we need more people to be educated on technology because... It seems a lot of people that make a lot of the important decisions with this stuff don't really understand how it works, even at a surface level. And I think that's dangerous. I think, like, I think electronic voting systems, for example, I think they're okay. I think we can go, like, you know, like you said, it's convenient. There's a a want for it. Yeah, I think we can get
1: there. I don't think we're at the place now where they're good. I mean, like, there are some places where, especially direct recordings being used, I think Texas does that in some places. Yeah. Like, no, there's no verification. There's nothing there. That is not a good system. But we can get there. There are methods. There is end-to-end verified voting that can be used. I mean, we haven't even talked about using the blockchain in
0: all of this. Uh um, dude, blockchain will automatically make it secure. Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh blockchain, yeah. just add that in there and you're good. No, but blockchain, I mean this okay. is a place where the blockchain actually does make sense to some degree. <laughs> or at least there are some theories towards how to use blockchain. Uh one of the problems though comes with a vote sale with a the blockchain. There are blockchain will increase the amount of computation you need to actually make any modification because you kinda of have to do the rest of the chain. But it also mm-hmm. means you kinda of have everything in order. There are some potential problems with it, but I th- yeah. I think we're kind of at the point where we can get there to use electronic voting. Maybe not fully electronic, voting, maybe you know verified with a paper audit trail, as a lot of these are. Like the DARPA one we talked about, it does have a paper audit trail that can be manually counted too. Yeah, um, and I think that's important. Like as long as we're starting to look at it and don't just react as. No, don't bring technology in here because technology is bad. Like we can deal with it, I believe. I, I believe with more research, at least we can get there.
0: Yeah, and I mean another point on that is, you know, as shown with this with this vulnerability in the Swiss system, uh, you know, it, it's possible that votes could be tampered with, you know, electronic voting systems it's also possible that votes could be tampered with in pen and paper voting systems. Like neither is 100% uh, secure, right? Like if you have, you know, corruption at a certain level, then even pen and paper isn't always going to be secure. So I think, you know, the technology side gets a bit of a bad rap for that.
1: Yeah. And I think we need the technology to be at least better than, or at least equal to, security of and and paper but pen and paper actually it works really well i mean when you think about the whole system you know you fill out the ballot in secret you take the ballot you know seal it up or whatever uh take it it gets the you pass it off it gets deposited in full view of everyone into the ballot box later it's taken out full view of everyone and counted in full view of people um I mean uh an individual could likely, you know, tamper with votes or miscount even just, you know, it happens for sure. Uh yeah. but it's verifiable, you can recount it. It's actually like paper ballots aren't a bad system by any means. It's just very human intensive, like in terms of the process that you need to go through.
0: And inefficient, right? A machine can tally well, votes instantly I mean. pretty much. Yeah. Uh, And that's the other thing, too, is, like you said, there is, like, even not, like, not malicious intent, it's easy to miscount votes when you're counting through a lot of them, like, pen and paper. A machine, unless there is tampering, shouldn't make that, like, a shouldn't miscount. You shouldn't even need recounts, but...
1: Yeah, but the machine, if it's compromised, is a much bigger deal than just the miscount. Like, the machine can impact the i mean the i'm just to be clear actually when we're talking about this we're not talking about online voting which is a whole another issue yeah Uh, just because i know some people kind of associate electronic voting with online voting it's we're not even going there online voting is not a good idea uh (laughs) even even if it were secure and i don't think you could get to that point at least not yet but um even if it were secure, the issue is still kind of selling your vote. If you're doing it online, just like with mail-in ballots, you could very easily kind of sell that vote because nobody's verifying that you're not being coerced while you're filling it out.
2: Yeah, and there's it's like there's no identifiability.
1: With you. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're not talking about online voting, just electronic voting.
0: Yeah. So i I've just thought of this. It's not really. It's a bit of an aside, but uh, I wonder w- what would happen with these electronic voting systems if there was something like a sudden power outage. So would like? So that I imagine is something we most about, like right?
1: most of these like uh, town halls or places you know may have generators for one. I mean, what happens with the paper ballots uh, if power goes out too? I mean, yeah, you can still fill it out, no doubt, but. You're probably in a dark room doing it and stuff. Um, it's still not convenient. So similarly, I think, even just battery powered. even. I mean, a lot of these yeah. don't necessarily need to be plugged in. They don't need to be high power. I mean, especially if it's like a tablet-like machine, almost. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need a lot of power to do that. So even if power went out... You know somebody trying to i I'm assuming you're talking about a malicious actor wanting to uh do that
0: well, no, even just like you know even just if there's a storm or something and there's a power outage, and you know if the if the tally machine suddenly losing power causes some sort of corruption in the votes that have already happened right like that could be something to consider right that that being said, like I think you're right, I think they there would be backup power supply you know. It's it's just yeah. Something it it I feels thought about. like an
1: easy thing to solve.
0: Yeah, just either generator
1: or battery powered. Um, or I mean, if if it's using like that Darpa system, uh, you just have to wait to actually put in the ballot. So they just hold it off for a bit while power's out. I yeah. mean, if there were like a, some like a tornado or something, it actually destroyed <laughs> a voting area.
0: I guess you would have bigger problems then. <laughs>
1: well, there would be bigger problems, but the other solution is they go vote somewhere else. Yeah. Um, or something like that. Of course, that comes into disenfranchisement and all of that, which I, yeah. I don't really want to dive into, but there no, are some I issues with that. But yeah, it is a big problem, but it's something that I feel like can be solved by somebody just sitting down and actually thinking about it. Um, it's yeah. not necessarily a security
0: issue. Oh, no, definitely not. I just thought of it, like, on the spot, pretty much.
1: But I do think kind of attacking these voting systems is an interesting security concept, because, I mean, if you you manage to break one, it does have a lot of consequence.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could consider, like, glitch attacks against voting systems. That could be very interesting, right? Like, even just somebody of course you Uh, need a high
1: level of access to
0: oh yeah definitely like you need physical access to the machines and and that but you know if you were able to somehow you know voltage glitch uh an electronic voting system or something that would cause issues in the way the vote is submitted or whatever that that could be an interesting attack vector as well though i i don't know how practical that would be really it probably yeah, wouldn't.
1: I mean, it doesn't sound too practical to me. I mean, I guess if somebody really wanted to do it, though, maybe they'd come up with a way to, but it... I don't know, to me, it just doesn't seem... I don't know, I guess if like, you could do something, like, if you could install something, that would result in the glitching. If you could do yeah. that, then you've got something, but... I mean, I'm assuming, I'm hoping the safe hardware that DARPA's got actually is, like, it's tamper-resistant. Maybe not tamper-proof. Yeah, I don't know is... what they're going to do. Like, maybe, maybe their secure system is literally just cover everything in epoxy or something.
0: <laughs> don't let them access any of the controls. We'll just put it in, uh, you know, yeah, military-grade steel. I guess that no comes problem. down
1: to the issue of, you know, you need to trust then that the code is running on there that's supposed to be there and it wasn't compromised before they approximate it, you know, at, like, the manufacturer or something. So I'm assuming DARPA's got some plan for dealing with that, like the verifiability. They do talk about that in the article, in the last article.
0: Yeah, and that is one thing I forgot. I forgot that they did talk about the safe hardware aspect, so that is probably being considered. uh, Yeah, well, I brought up there the whole idea of the sexy project for them too use yeah. the
1: safe hardware with like I'm really interested to see what the safe hardware is and like what type of attacks they consider and of that because I mean it, it's definitely an interesting area I don't do a ton of the hardware hacking stuff so
0: yeah I, I'm not yeah I, I've I'm interested in it but I don't do it so
1: and when we get that maybe we'll want to bring somebody on to kind of talk about it in more detail because I mean it's definitely an interesting area uh, especially the verifying actually is what interests me
0: yeah and the i think what makes it more interesting especially for voting systems is like you said with pen and paper what you're doing is open right it's not easy to tamper with a pen and paper vote uh, without other people noticing it right it's hard to be subtle with it with an electronic voting system if there is a uh well just to quickly if, if it's interrupt, tampered it's... Hard to okay. be subtle with
1: it on a large scale. Again, yeah. somebody who's counting it, they can be really subtle with it and kind of get away with counting, miscounting votes on a very small scale of just the votes that they're counting. You know, they yeah. can work together, but on a large scale it's hard to do that. So sorry, go on.
0: But yeah, I was just gonna say, when it's in a machine, uh it's you know nobody there is going to be able to easily tell if it's running a modified firmware or something like that, right?
1: Yeah, which is where there's some verifiability. So I'm hopeful that that's going to kind of at least attempt a solution. I'm not sure what's existing in terms of like verifiability on hardware right now, but I'm assuming that DARPA's got something up their sleeve for verifying that what's running is what's supposed to be running.
0: Yeah, I mean, you'd hope so, but it's definitely been overlooked before, so I I wouldn't be too surprised. Oh, absolutely. I guess there
1: are verifiable ASICs, so... I mean, something exists for that. Yeah. I I just did a really quick Google, I haven't read this, but... You know, at least some research has been done on this. Trustworthy hardware with untrusty components. So... I mean, I think there's a good chance that even if it's not necessarily going to be verifiable by, like, just, like, your everyday person kind of standing there looking at it, yeah. we should be able to verify that things weren't tampered with.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I think that concludes that discussion. I don't, I don't really have much more to add on the voting stuff. Yeah, you? No,
1: I, I think we've kind of hit all of the big points with that and that's also kind of our last topic for the stream
0: yeah so uh i think that wraps up the podcast uh w- hopefully we'll ha- well no not hopefully we we will have anti back next week so we'll have the uh the three so three man squad back. going again
1: anti should be back next week and like i kind of mentioned during the stream if you guys have anything you want to hear us talk about uh, feel free to drop a comment and let us know. Obviously, that'll have to be on the YouTube, uh, on the yep. YouTube upload. But definitely let us know uh, for anybody that's kind of just wanting to get uh, podcast like uh, RSS feed or something of this. I am working on it. Uh, we haven't decided where we're going to be hosting it, but that will be coming kind of within the next few streams. Hopefully, I'm going to hope for next week, but we'll see what happens with that.
0: Uh, yeah, the other thing is we hope to. Uh Be doing other streams in the near future, non podcast episodes, just like uh, miscellaneous, you know, reversing exploit streams, stuff like that. Uh, So, yeah, that'll hopefully be coming in the near future. Yeah. So,
2: all right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Yep. We'll see you next Monday.